Transforming Subarctic Environments. We start the new year with an interview with Lisa Piper about her new book on Canada's North. Um, but what I argue in this book is that it's not just adaptation, it's just not just accommodating um, natural systems, but it's actually assimilating them. I'm Sean Courage, and you're listening to episode 12 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the Network in Canadian History and Environment. Last November, Professor Lisa Piper visited UBC's Vancouver campus for a special live recording of Nature's Past, sponsored by the Nature History Society Group and the Network in Canadian History and Environment. Dr. Piper joined us to talk about the release of her new book, The Industrial Transformation of Subarctic Canada. In this book, Lisa Piper explores the industrial development of Canada's subarctic region from the 1920s to the 1960s, including its transportation network, mining activities, and industrial fisheries on the large lakes of the Northwest. To find out more, we spoke with Dr. Piper. I'm Lisa Piper from the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta. Lisa, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Uh, I should say that we are joined by a live studio audience of uh, graduate students and faculty at the University of British Columbia. (laughs) And we're here to discuss uh, 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 Professor Piper's um, new book, The Industrial Transformation of Subarctic Canada, published by uh, University of British Columbia Press in the Nature History Society series. So I wanted to start off the conversation this afternoon by asking you what the genesis was of this book. What drew you to the history of the large lakes of Canada's subarctic? Um, Well, the genesis actually began uh, back when in the summer of 1998, I had the good fortune of having of getting to work for a summer on Reindeer Lake in northern Saskatchewan as a field assistant with the Geological Survey of Canada. And this was the first time I'd been west, actually, and it was the first time I'd been on any kind of body of water other than an ocean or a sea that was of substantial size and I was really quite shocked at how large Reindeer Lake was Um, and that summer though I wasn't a historian I was something I was that was another life Um, (laughs) but when I went on to to do graduate work I was really I was still really intrigued by these large lakes Um, and especially the ones in the west because I knew that people knew about the Great Lakes and the Great Lakes had sort of performed an important role in Canada's history but people hadn't really looked at these large bodies of water in western Canada and so I decided to to start pursuing their role in uh, western economic history and western environmental history Uh, and from there that's how I, I, I came to start to look at and and it, what's kind of funny about it is that even though Reindeer Lake inspired all of this, it doesn't really figure at all in the book. I think it gets sort of a passing mention because Reindeer Lake wasn't actually that big compared to Lake Winnipeg, Lake Athabasca, Great Slave and Great Bear, which are the, the four main lakes that, that form the substance of the, the, the book. So. so maybe we can uh, move the conversation then to talk about what, 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 what you discovered. What is the significance or what was the significance of the large lakes to Canada's industrialization or the industrialization of this region of Canada? Or what was the significance of these large lakes to uh, understanding the history of industrialization in general? Well, what's really interesting about the lakes is that they end up acting as openings in a landscape that other, where otherwise resources, whether it be food or fuel or um, labor resources, are otherwise widely dispersed. They ended up concentrating around the lakes themselves. And so if you looked, one of the first sort of geographies, I guess, that I started to notice was that mining uh, operations were situated on the large lake shores first, and then only subsequently would they be further inland. Um, and this was because you had, it was easy to get, um, it was 
it facilitated transportation because you could carry large weights across the lakes and get them further in. Uh, the water resources were there. Um, there were food resources and so on. So in, in that regard, and the lakes as well also act, um, they, they lie at the border between the uh, Precambrian Shield and the Western Interior Plains. So they're right at this borderland, this physiographic borderland in Canada that then provide a staging, provided a staging ground, in effect, for further um, industrialization, further inland. So, um, but in terms of their significance to... So their significance to the larger history of industrialization, what's really interesting is that you, or what I found really interesting, <laughs> is that you, you get industrialization in this part of the world um, at a fairly late stage. It's sort of second stage industrialization. So this isn't, there had been some coal-based uh, indu industry, um, but really industry takes off in this region um, as a result of second stage fossil fuels, so oil and gas. Um, and in particular, the discovery of oil at Norman Wells, which was Imperial Oil's first um, big oil operation, and Norman Wells is up on the Mackenzie, which is quite close to Great Bear Lake. Um, that oil well wouldn't have been developed had it not uh, been for the mining and resource opportunities on both Great Bear and Great Slave. So you get this sort of regional industrialization that takes off, predicated upon uh, fossil fuel resources. Now, what's interesting about that is that in a lot of, you know, you have then very rapid in 20th century 20th century industrialization. And so it's predicated upon high energy fuels and it's predicated upon particular kinds of technologies and, and specifically um, aerial technologies. So bush planes become absolutely central to how this part of the world is able to industrialize. Um, and again, the lakes perform an important role here because they and all the other fresh waters that lie in between, it's not just the large lakes, but it's, it's really the fact that this is a waterlogged landscape, are what allow um, a transportation network to, to be put into place that can penetrate quite far inland that doesn't require the kinds of costs, the kinds of infrastructure development. Instead, all you need is a plane that you can switch between skis or wheels or um, floats. Um, and you can land it just about anywhere and you can bring in supplies, you can bring in uh, equipment, you can bring in researchers, you can bring in workers. Uh, and this is, you know, this is then foundational to the kind of industrial activity that takes place. So to have that kind of industrialization take place in Canada's subarctic is really important for thinking about the sustainability, I guess, of, um, of a particular kind of 20th century industrial activity, um, it, rather than the sort of longer-term uh, industrial activity like you see in Britain or elsewhere. It's, the question is then, you know, were the economies that were built in the North and in the Northwest after 1920, did they have the kind of long-term viability that, that um, other kinds of industrial economies have? So maybe this gets to one of the, the main arguments of the book then. Can you explain for, for listeners, many of us here have read the book, but can you explain for listeners what you mean when you write, uh, people used industrial fuels and technologies to assimilate nature, but did not dominate or destroy it? Well, one of the Typically, when we think about the way in which industry remakes the natural world, we do think about it as, as taking away everything that's natural and replacing it with artifice. Um, and uh, Bill Cronin sort of wrote about this in Nature's Metropolis, where he talked about the, the second nature that's laid upon first nature, which is he's drawing from other people when he writes about that as well. And so it's, it's really this notion of an overlay or, or a replacement. And what I would argue... And where 
other people have come to challenge this idea that industry just sort of replaces um, mm -hmm. natural systems. And some people have talked about adaptation. Tyler Priest, where he writes about um, oil in the, the uh, Gulf of Mexico, says that the oil industry adapted. Um, but what I argue in this book is that it's not just adaptation. It's just not just accommodating um, natural systems, but it's actually assimilating them. So it's, it's integrating them into industrial operations. And so um, you can think about this integration uh, in the way that highways are built, the fact that they quarry, and this is sort of an aesthetic integration, I find. If you ever drive up on the Mackenzie Highway, you'll notice that the Mackenzie Highway is the same color as the rocks around it, and that's because they quarried those rocks to provide the raw material to build the highway. And so you do, in fact, have this sort of integration of the local landscape into the industrial infrastructure that's built, but you also get more, more um, profound kinds of integrations, ways in which, for instance, water resources um, are made to flow through the industrial operations that are put in place. And so water from the lakes is put um, in through the mines and the mills and it's used to flush all, all the materials in and out of the mines and mills. Um, and this then is where you get a lot of the problems with industrial activity. Industrial activity isn't necessarily problematic in and of, in and of itself. It's how it integrates and assimilates the natural world and therefore creates connections between natural systems and industrial operations that can have very profound consequences. I think another factor that you highlight in the book that changes the way I think we think about industrialization is your emphasis on the importance of markets. Can you uh, speak a little bit about how uh, markets shaped this history that you studied? Well, you wouldn't have... There, w there were some local markets. Um, well, there was obviously a fur trade market, and there were mo local markets for fisheries, because I, uh, I write about fisheries as well in the book. Um, but these local markets never justified or warranted the amount of investment required to in particular establish mines, but even to establish commercial scale fisheries. You had a local domestic fishery, but there weren't enough people living up there who wanted to eat fish to really warrant, you know, large scale harvesting. And so it ends up being the case that it's distant markets that ultimately drive the industrialization of the region that provide the consumer base that uh, makes it make sense to, to spend the money to, to send planes up there and to, to ship fish down or to ship um, to ship uranium or gold down, as these are the principal mm -hmm. mine, mine products of mines that come down. So it, it's the, the development that takes place along the large lake shores is driven by the demands of distant markets. Now, this is problematic because um, it's in that distance between where the consumers are and where the production is taking place that allows for non-sustainable practices because people who are at a distance, the uh, urban American consumers who principally consumed um, the freshwater fish from Great Slave Lake or from Lake Winnipeg, this is where 90% of the fish that was harvested on these lakes went south and across the border and it fed in particular Jewish families living in New York City who wanted their gefilte fish at um, Yom Kippur. And so they're not seeing what's happening to the large lake systems as production intensifies, as um, harvesting intensifies, and as what locals do notice, the lakes start to deplete. And so they're, in the absence of that kind of recognition, there's no... There, the consumers don't set up any kind of limits to how much they want because they don't see that there's any problem the fish is coming to them and so that's fine um, and so and this is I'm not the first to have written about this um, Richard Hoffman and others have have talked about the role of of distant markets in driving um, um, in driving sort of the uh, excess over harvesting of of um, particular resources but that really is the role that distant markets start to play and this is obviously 
something that really resonates with 21st century industrialization and consumer markets in North America that consume resources that come from all over the world. Maybe we could talk about mining for a moment here then. This book treats mining in a way that I think is different than how mining has been treated in environmental history. How have, how have you reframed or reimagined mining history in, in this book? Well, one of the, the ways in which mines are thought about in most environmental histories is that they're, in effect, non-living environments. And, and it's, it's not just mines, but in a lot of environmental history, there's a fairly rigid distinction drawn between living and non-living things, um, with the emphasis and the value typically placed on that which is living, um, and non-living things seen as being sort of uh, a lot more problematic. Um, and But even though you have I, I'm not uh, so with mining. What you find is that in this period in time, and particularly because of the role that geological science comes to play in the mining industry in early 20th century, mid 20th century Canada, that mines aren't in fact being under. Or they aren't exclusively understood by those who are mining themselves or those who are directing mine development. They aren't understood as being non-living environments. They're in fact understood as living environments. Um, this is how geologists conceptualize subterranean worlds. They th think of them as in motion over time um, and being highly dynamic. Mm -hmm. And they think that not just about the rocks, but also about, um, but also about the, mine, the mine structures that they're putting into place. And so you have then one, uh, in effect, a culture of a living mine environment that's that's perpetuated and um, understood by miners, by uh, mine engineers, by geologists, and so forth. And it's this doesn't necessarily lead to any more positive consequences. It's not like just because you see a mine environment as being a living place that the mine itself then doesn't do damage to nature. Um, but it does help us to better understand why it is that um, that these operations proceed in the way that they do, how they sort of justify the kinds of developments that are underway, and also to a certain extent why it is that they don't have a problem with taking them apart because they see them as being regenerating, for instance. They see them as having their own sort of uh, productive capacity, that it's not just sort of taking apart a statue or taking apart a monument or something like that, um, but in fact that this is a dynamic environment, that they're just one sort of more dynamic element in it. So. And you talk a lot about life support systems in, within mines, that mines aren't just uh, imagined by geologists and miners as living spaces, but they are literally living spaces in which water and air is being circulated. Mm -hmm. Well, because if you're going to have people living underground, then you need to be able to sustain those people underground. And so you have to set up um, uh, air connections, water connections, um, in order to uh, electricity connections, mm -hmm. in order to, to animate what's happening beneath the earth's surface. So just as, you know, uh, just as you have a building is built upwards, mines are in effect buildings that are built underground um, with the same kinds of connections too. And this again goes back to this notion of assimilating the natural world that mm -hmm. it's not that these activities take place in in bubbles, <laughs> um, but rather that they are that they are very closely connected to the surrounding local environments, and they are very much dependent upon the resources that are, are available there. So, and you also examine, as you said, industrial fisheries on the large lakes. In what ways uh, uh, does evolutionary history come to influence this study uh, when we're talking about the fisheries? 
Well, one of the things that's really important for thinking about with the fisheries is what happens to the f lake populations, what happens to the lakes as a consequence of industrial activity. So, Because mm -hmm. there's two things that I, I try to do in this work, which is both to chart the character of industrial change and then to consider the consequences of it so that we can have a sense about the kinds of impacts that these kinds of activities have. And so if you're thinking about the kinds of impacts that fishing, that in, uh, commercial industrial fishing operations have, you you know that they, um, well, w a lot of the debate that took place at the time, in particular on Great Slave Lake, where um, the the government introduced what was known as the first state-managed fishery, um, or first scientifically managed fishery, um, because from the very outset, from when it was opened, they had scientists sort of measuring and figuring out what was going to happen and, and trying to be careful that they weren't depleting it and, and so on and so forth. But even though they ha even though it was presumably monitored by scientists, there were nevertheless huge concerns about depletion and about and mm -hmm. and um about the, the degradation of the this system. And so if you're thinking about the fisheries histories on, on the lake, um you do need to the the kinds of changes that take place they're more significant or they're more complicated than simply the removal of of fish although obviously that removal of biomass is a very dramatic and drastic change to these environments but they have further consequences and so um, evolutionary history offers one way of thinking about those further consequences which is that the presence of gill nets that have a, you know set sizes because of the regulations that are put in place to 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 manage or to to administer the fisheries, the, these gill nets then act as a form of artificial selection, selecting for fish of a particular size. And so over time, and not over a very long period of time, mm -hmm. in fact, you have the fish populations being smaller and younger. And this helps us then to put the kinds of impacts that people have on natural systems into better perspective because typically evolution is seen as being something that takes place over very long periods of time and it's a very slow process but um, evolutionary history allows us to think about the fact that in fact human beings can have a very significant impact upon a population um, of, a, of an enormous lake, these are some of the largest lakes in the world, um, in a very short period of time depending on the kinds of technologies that, it, that, that are used and the kinds of s the scale and duration of the, the harvesting. So, so w within less than a century, some of these changes are observable then? Mm -hmm. yeah. it, far less than a century. You know, Lake Winnipeg is, um, well, it's over, it's it's not just that you see the shifts in the population, but it's also noticeably depleted um, within about 40 years. Great Slave Lake, um, you start to see the changes within about 15, 20 years. Um, the lake is uh, open to development in 1945, and then um, by 1956, there's already uh, there's already sort of a lot of evidence of what's going on. So, so we know that this book began as a dissertation project uh, that incidentally won the Rachel Carson Prize for best dissertation in, in environmental history uh, when you completed it. Uh, what were some of the challenges of revising a dissertation dissertation into a book manuscript for publication? Um, one of the the biggest challenges is that you well, one of the biggest. There's several challenges, <laughs> as as you're well aware. Um, but one of the challenges is that you have to read it so many times, you lose perspective on it, <laughs> and you just you you and you know you're get, you have this thing which which makes which made so much sense as a dissertation, and now it's got to make a lot of sense as a book, and. It can't be the same thing, though. You know, it, it's got to change, and it's you have to revise it. There's still still things that you want to do, but 
it's a balance between what you take apart from the dissertation um, and what you put back together. Because if you take apart that dissertation structure too much, then you're sort of left with, with all these pieces that don't have a, a, the coherence that they had. There's a certain momentum to any kind of writing project, and a dissertation has that. But you can't, it, it needs to have a different kind of momentum to be a book. So figuring out how to make that, that shift, finding the sort of voice that's going to carry the book along, um, mm-hmm. is, a, is a complicated, it, it's a difficult process. Um, because you also know that even as you're deciding what it is that you need and you want to change, the reviewers who read it are going to have their own opinions about what they want you to change and revise. And so you've got to leave a bit of space for that too. Um, And that's why you end up reading it so many times (laughs) that you lose all perspective on what you're actually saying by a certain point. So just that that sort of process of of revisiting something um, and, and trying to make it into something something more is is a real challenge um but there's also um you know there's there's also very in a sense there's also other sort of pragmatic um difficulties in revising dissertations um into into books you know you have to shrink it down you have to get rid of all the footnotes um and i know that that sounds a bit sort of oh well that's not that hard but but you know our bread and that's what we do is we put in footnotes (laughs) (laughs) to get rid of them you sort of feel well then how who will believe me if i don't have that footnote (laughs) showing that it actually happened are they just going to believe me so so that's actually and you know that's but books with too many footnotes don't sell so or well they don't get published so so those are some of the 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 challenges that i had and as you were revising uh were you writing with a sense of a different audience um i i actually was and i wasn't um if only because when i was writing the original dissertation i I, I had a I didn't have a sense that I was just writing it for my committee. I mm-hmm. had a sense of of I was trying to get my thoughts on the subject out there in this in this way. Even though there are certain things that you do obviously to satisfy your committee, just like with the book, there are certain things that you do to satisfy the reviewers. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in that sense, you have sort of the the um, very practical, pragmatic audience that these are the people who are going to decide whether this thing goes ahead or not. And then your sense of a, of a larger audience. So I did have a sense um, of of trying to reach um, in a, in some kinds of ways. I had thought you know it would be nice to reach an even broader audience with with this book, in particular because it's about Canada's subarctic. So it's about a part of the world where, um, like up north in particular, and Western Canada as well. These are places where people are very interested in this history, and so you know I. Uh, it would be really nice if they would actually if they would read it so trying to make it accessible in that fashion trying to change some of the language um but then again you also you don't want you know one of the things that they say when you're trying to write (laughs) or trying to transition something from a dissertation into a a book is that you really need to find your own voice and so you don't want to be working so hard to reach out to an audience that you lose your your, how you're going to talk about these things like this is how I I write about these things this is the sort of voice that I have when I write these things so in that regard um, I wasn't trying to tailor it too closely to to an audience although I was always keeping them, them in mind so. Well, Lisa, I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, I hope uh, listeners have a chance to pick up a copy of The Industrial Transformation of Subarctic Canada. Thank you, Sean. <laughs> and we're done. <laughs> Nature's Past is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Lisa Piper and me, Sean Courage. 
Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes at niche-canada.org slash nature's past, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, and leave comments. Please let us know what you think about the podcast, and don't forget to rate this podcast and write a short review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash nature's past. If you have any ideas for new episodes or you want to send me some feedback, contact me through my website, seancourage.wordpress.com. You can always get the latest information on events in the environmental history community from the Niche website at niche-canada.org. Thanks for listening, and be sure to download our next episode.